0: word this morning is coming to us from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. I'll be reading Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is the word of the Lord. In the, uh, the TV dark comedy, Arrested Development, the, the whole series is a, uh, a mocking of dysfunctionality in a wealthy family and their adult children who are then passing on dysfunction to their children. You know, lighthearted comedy sort of stuff. But there's a, a running gag called the Milford School. The Milford School is where some of these uh, wealthy families are sending their children. And, and the motto of the Milford School is, children should be neither seen nor heard. And, and the joke throughout the series is you can always tell a Milford man, a man who was raised at Milford because he's hiding. He's, he's behind the trees. He's, he's hiding behind the couch. He's in the room and you don't even know it because a Milford man is quiet. Because children should be neither seen nor heard. What does it say about a family if the children are neither seen nor heard? What does it say to the children when they are clearly not welcome, physically present, but not part of the conversation? The presumption being that children, according to the Milford School, have nothing to offer us. And until the day they have something valuable to contribute, they should just stay out of the way. Be quiet in the corner where you belong. There's a danger that among God's people we would take a similar view and see children as incapable of being fully part of the life of God's people until they prove that they have something to contribute. And so we give priority to those who have more to offer. And we imitate those who are more worthy of our time. In these few short verses, Jesus challenges those habits and reminds us that His is a kingdom of grace. And grace is not concerned with worthiness or achievement. In Jesus' words to His disciples and to us, His disciples today, is to let grace be grace. To welcome and to imitate. Those who seem to have nothing to offer. So the first question in this passage that Jesus answers is, who takes priority? Who takes priority? A little explanation on the context in verse 13. We see that children were brought to Him that He might lay His hands on them and pray. Now in Scripture, the laying of hands is a phrase that's used in several different contexts to mean some very different things. Uh, You can lay your hands on somebody in violence to punish them. You can lay your hands on someone for the purpose of of healing, but in how it's used in these verses, the more common use, to lay hands to communicate blessing. And it was very common in Jesus' day and culture for people to bring children, even infants, to bring them to the elders of the community, and especially to the rabbi, the teachers of God's Word, the religious leaders, and, and to have these respected people who represent the community To have them pray over the children and announce blessing on them. I think it's a beautiful custom. It communicated respect for for the elders. It strengthened relationships within the community. It took seriously God's desire that we pray for one another. And it acted on the outrageous belief that God hears and answers our prayers. So here you have Jesus, a popular teacher with a growing reputation as a man of God, as a prophet. It's not strange to think that as he comes to a new town, people would bring their children to him and ask the rabbi, the teacher, that he would pray for and bless their children. But it's more than that. The laying on of hands is more than that. Maybe even more so in in the COVID era in which we find ourselves, laying on of hands communicates also acceptance. It communicates a connection with someone and an acceptance of that person. To touch someone in that way says, I accept you. I welcome you. I receive you. I am connected to you. In Scripture, we see this action done not only when praying for and blessing someone, but when ordaining and calling them into a special task or ministry. The laying on of hands narrows down and says, I'm not talking to everybody here. I'm talking to you. I accept you. I welcome you specifically. Not just generally to everyone, but to you. I accept you. You didn't do that to just anybody. It was was meaningful. It was special. It communicates God's blessing and your blessing on someone. And God's welcome. And for the elders of a community, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, to, to communicate that to a child is to welcome the child into the community and say, as a representative of this community, I accept you and I bring you in. No wonder the parents would bring their children to Jesus and ask Him to lay His hands to receive these children, to welcome them and bless them. But as we see in the rest of verse 13, the disciples responded differently. They they rebuked the people who were bringing their children. I think it's actually easy to judge the disciples. It's a little too easy to judge the disciples here because we know how the story plays out. Oh, what were they thinking? Of course Jesus is going to welcome the children. But let's pause and consider it from their perspective. Jesus is in high demand. He is becoming a well known figure, a public figure, and there is responsibility that goes along with that. Jesus has wisdom to, to settle disputes. And so people would, would bring disputes to him and say, Could you judge? Could you arbitrate? And then Jesus didn't respond well to that, but he had the wisdom to do so. And he had a knowledge of the scriptures such that people would, would come to him to hear how he was explaining scriptures that in many cases had been wrongly taught and wrongly explained to God's people. And he was saying, no, this, this is what God means. This is God's heart. And so they wanted to come and hear the important words and teachings of Jesus. But not only that, he was also a mighty healer. And people everywhere were crowding around him to just, to just touch him. So much so in one story, we see that that. That there's crowds pressing in, and, and Jesus feels that someone has touched him and been healed. And he says, Who did that? Who did that? And the disciples said, Lord, everybody's touching you. How can you ask who did that? And another time, someone comes up seeking healing for their child. And then a messenger comes and says, you know, Your kid's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't stop bothering him. Don't waste his time. Fortunately, Jesus didn't see it as a waste of his time. But the point is, he's, he's, a, he's a mighty teacher. He's a wise judge. He's a a mighty healer. And he has power over the natural and supernatural world. Who else can calm the storm? Who else is able to cast out legions of demons? Who else can feed thousands of people with just a little bit of food? Who else can open up the word of God? He is capable of so much and can do so many important things. This is not an ordinary teacher or even a prophet. This is the God-man. This is Yahweh Himself in human flesh. As Colossians 1.19 says, In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the things He is able to do. All that He is capable of. All the important and serious matters before Him that only He can do. You want to put your kid on his lap? Come on. That's that's what the disciples are thinking. Come on. It's like if you found out your neighbor was a a brain surgeon. And you said, hey, so you're a doctor. Could, Could you look at this splinter that I've got? It's like you don't even know who you're talking to. It's not worth our time. They have much more important things that they can be looking at and doing. So the disciples rebuke the people because basically they are saying, Jesus is not worth this. His time is too valuable. God may be infinite and unconstrained by time, but Jesus' earthly life and ministry was constrained by time. As he'd been saying to his disciples, they didn't seem to get the message, but he kept saying, It won't be long, and I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed, I'm going to be crucified. I won't be with you forever. Maybe they're taking that to heart. His time is too precious. Let's not waste it with small things and small, unimportant people. Let's focus on the stuff that really matters. That's From that perspective, their actions make a bit of sense. They're trying to protect Jesus from busy work, from less important tasks. And I fear it may be easier for us to relate to the disciples in this, then we realize how many of us think of God as being busy with big, important things and not quite so interested in us. We simple folk. We're not the great evangelists or missionaries. We are not the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the famous people. Surely God cares more about those with national-level influence those whose Twitter has millions of followers, and if they just tweet a word of the Lord, that word reaches so many. Surely God cares about those who would have the ear of politicians and judges and other important figures. He's much more concerned about that than He is about my small corner of the world. Surely He is not that interested in what I do. He has so much else on His plate. Or perhaps we're even more like the disciples. Than that. Perhaps we would be those who would want to draw lines around God and say, this is the type of person that is worth God's time, and this is the one who is not. Who's worth God's time? Well, of course, it's the the ones like us, right? The ones who have more knowledge or the correct knowledge. The ones who are putting in the time to serve, who've made the sacrifice. The ones who are more mature. The ones who give more the ones who have certain gifts that are more valuable and more important in god's kingdom we would sometimes draw those lines not not out loud but in the way we act and in the way we think but jesus said in verse 14 let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such to such belongs the kingdom of heaven The disciples began with a rebuke, but in the end, they are the ones who receive the rebuke. Because when we draw lines around God declaring who is worth His time, we have lost sight of God's heart. When we make distinctions about who is more worthy of God's time, about the type of person that God is more interested in, then what we have done is chosen a standard by which a person earns or deserves God's love. If God is more pleased with the theologian than the non-theologian, then it is our study that makes us worthy of God's love. If God gives greater attention to the more generous giver, then it is our offering and sacrifice that earns His attention. If God is more welcoming to the bold activist who does mighty deeds in faith and stands up for what's right in the public sphere then it is our boldness and our deeds that win us the favor of God. This is why Jesus' actions here are so beautiful. If the children are less worth His time than other people, then we have made a distinction that Jesus Himself did not make. A distinction inconsistent with a covenant view of salvation. A covenant view of salvation which says, It's not because of what you did that God receives you. It's because God made a promise and He welcomes you in light of that promise. Not because you made a good choice. Not because you had faith and so and so did not. It's based on a covenant. One of of my favorite parts of uh, one of our doctrinal documents in our denomination, the Westminster Confession of Faith, speaks of this and says that the Holy Spirit is free to work salvation when and where and however it chooses. But it typically does so. He typically works salvation through the preaching of the Word. We hear the Word of God and we respond to it. However, it doesn't have to be that way. The confession says that the the Holy Spirit can work salvation apart from the Word of God among those who are not able... To respond to the Word. What does that mean? Who is not able to respond to the Word of God? An infant? A young child? A mentally handicapped person? An elderly person who has lost their cognitive facilities? A person who suffered a traumatic injury? There are many reasons we might not be able to respond cognitively to the Word of God. But our welcome into God's kingdom does not come through our cognitive ability. There are many, and in fact I would argue all, according to a covenant view of salvation, who do not fight to be there, but are instead carried to the Savior's lap. And they're placed to receive blessing. That is our salvation, brothers and sisters. So as we go about the life of the church, As we plan our worship, as we plan our activities, as we do life together, do we subtly somehow communicate that real church, real discipleship is something for those who meet some other standard? Is the life of faith something that's only for those who can study it? Is discipleship only for those who can define it or explain it? Do we hinder children, or for that matter, others? when we present the Christian life as something not for them unless they can read a Bible or recite a catechism or explain justification? Does someone have to be able to sit quietly and pay attention in order to be able to follow Jesus? Do you have to be able to explain discipleship before you do it? I would hope we don't teach that. At this church, we don't try to. There are no second class citizens in God's kingdom. A child is just as welcomed and honored and just as much a disciple as the greatest hero of the faith. This has been the message that God was teaching over and over to His people. He seemed to always choose the weakest, didn't He? The youngest. The one with with no access. The outsider. Instead of the one who seemed to be the obvious choice. It was... Jacob over Esau, right? Joseph over his brothers. David over his brothers. Isaac over Ishmael. It was never the first choice. So that when Israel was entering the promised land, the Lord warned them in Deuteronomy 7 it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why does the Lord love you? He loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because I'm good and strong and smart? No. Jesus loves me, this I know. Because the Bible tells me so. He loves me because He loves me. It's no more complicated than that. And so the Apostle Paul sums it up this way in Romans 9. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. As Jesus welcomes the children, see in that welcome a declaration, a reminder that the welcoming love of God is not a response to your worthiness or your proper choices. It's not a response to your appeal. It's not a response to your maturity. It is based on grace. He loves us apart from what we do or offer. Let grace be grace. Don't try to find a reason why God showed you His grace. But not only that, as those who have received the grace of God, He expects that we would show that same unconditional welcoming acceptance and not set up in our hearts or in our minds different categories of who is more pleasing in God's sight. Who is more favored to God? Who does He prefer? Our worship, our fellowship together must be welcoming to all and accessible to all Whom the Lord welcomes. But it goes further than that. The question is not just who gets priority. Because the answer to that is no one. Nobody gets to cut the line. Nobody has the VIP pass. Nobody is favored for what they've done. But it's more than that. The question next is who do we imitate? We don't just need to welcome the children. According to these verses, we need to be like them. Verse 14 says, Let the little children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the Kingdom of Heaven. To such is the key phrase there. It doesn't mean the Kingdom of Heaven belongs to children. It means to those who are like the children. Those who are, have become like a child. Now if this sounds familiar, if you've been here the past few months, you recall that not long ago we were in the previous chapter of Matthew and we heard how Jesus said that you must become like a child. And we saw it as the disciples were arguing over who, which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus replies in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Forget being the greatest, you don't even get in. If you're looking around trying to be better than other people and and trusting in some sort of status or something that you bring to the table, you've missed it. You're not even in the door yet. You haven't humbled yourself like a child. And Jesus went on to explain that that meant rather than fighting for status, we accept that we have no status like a child. We stand before God without anything to commend us. No resume, no list of accomplishments, no receipts, no credentials, nothing to boast in or justify us. As we sang this morning, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no powers, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. We are humble and can only be accepted by grace. So if we already looked at that a few chapters ago, why are we talking about it again? It's it's an interesting idea. Randy and I were talking about this recently, that there are a couple passages in Scripture that that speak to this effect, that as, as teachers of the Word, our job is not novelty, My job is not to get up here every week and tell you something new. If it was, I would have run out of content a while ago. Like the second week. Uh, 2 Peter, I love how he puts this. He says, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. That's what he's doing. I mean, it is 2 Peter, not 1 Peter. He's like, I'm stirring you up by reminder. I'm just reminding you of things you should already know. Philippians 3, Paul says, to write the same things to you again. It's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Why are we looking at the same thing twice? Because we need to. Matthew mentions it twice in a short space. Jesus felt the need to repeat it, because the disciples who He just said, look, I welcomed a child in front of me, and said, become like this child. And then not long after that, the disciples are saying, keep your kids out of here. They missed the point. We need to be reminded. It's important. We need to hear these things again and again. So here I am, brothers and sisters, stirring you up by way of reminder. It's no trouble for me to preach the same thing to you again. And it's safe for you. God wants us to rethink the type of person that we imitate. So think about it. Who who are the people that you want to imitate? Who are your role models? The people you want to be like. Is it a musician, a politician, athletes, movie stars, activists, historical figures, generals? Look at what your heart is doing. Why do you want to be like that person? Why do you take them as a role model? When you take someone as a role model, when you want to be like them, it's because you see in them something that you value, something you believe is important. You want to be like them. You're making a value judgment. You're declaring to yourself that what this person does or is or possesses can make me acceptable. It's important. You know, all people live their lives in pursuit of that. You are living your life in pursuit of being accepted. Everybody you know, spiritual, non-spiritual, Christian, non-Christian, everyone is seeking acceptance. We want to know What it is that will make me important enough or meaningful enough or powerful enough to be accepted by others. It doesn't matter if we're trying to be acceptable in our own eyes, by our own standard, self-worth, in God's eyes, or in the eyes of some people in our life that we think are important. We're still chasing the same thing. And the Bible calls that righteousness. When the Bible uses that word, that's what it's saying. To be righteous is to be declared right. You are right. You are acceptable. You are worthy. You are good enough. And that's what we live our life chasing. Now we chase it down a million different paths. If I, if I look pretty enough, I'll be acceptable. If I'm wealthy enough, I'll be acceptable. If I'm kind enough, if I'm moral enough, if I'm whatever, but you're still chasing the same thing. You want to be righteous. And we tend to look up to the people that do well at that that have taken whatever it is we think will make us righteous, and they excel at it. They're the prettiest, the fastest, the strongest, the richest, the kindest, the holiest, whatever it is. We want that. And we try to be like them. Because what our society tells us, what our world tells us, is that victory, success, these things belong to the strong. They belong to the brave. They belong to the wealthy. They belong to the popular. They belong to the beautiful. And Jesus says, no. True victory, true happiness, the acceptance that you are chasing does not come from those things. It is a gift that is given by grace. We don't need to be special to impress God and to convince Him that we deserve His acceptance because His love is a gift. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 is very familiar to many of us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. There's nothing you can do to be accepted by God. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to those like a child. That doesn't mean those who are innocent or naive or childish or whatever. It means... The status of a child. The one who says, I have nothing to commend myself. I'm not trying to earn my way here. Does a child need to earn their way into a family? Do they need to prove their belonging to a family? No, they should not. To be like a child, we accept God's grace and not worry about trying to deserve to be blessed. Now why? Why does the grace of God work this way? Well in Colossians one, we get a, or, yeah, Colossians one, we get a bit of an answer. It says, "But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to bring things, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If we truly believe the grace of God, then we need to let grace. Be grace and say, look, God is in a habit of choosing the the ones, the people, who have no, no reason to say, look, I did this. I was worth this. I deserved this. When God chooses the weak and the lowly and the humble, He is saying, it's me. It's me that did it. God alone saved you. If we truly let grace be grace, then we will not always be looking for a way to stand out or be noticed we won't be comparing ourselves to other people trying to measure up somehow if a child even a child an infant is welcomed in the presence of our savior and we are called to be like that child then any effort to advance ourselves or to boost ourselves every hour spent trying to impress others or to stand out it is wasted time does that mean we're called to mediocrity no No, far from it. God has gifted you. God has given you many good things as a trust, as a stewardship. He expects you to make the most of that, whether it's your finances, your physical body, your opportunities, your education, your talents, whatever it is, you're called to excellence, to strive in the Lord's name. But we're cautioned not to put our hope in achievement, not to look to those and think, this is why God loves me. Because I can sing This is why God loves me because I'm intelligent. This is why God loves me because I lead my family well. Now, we're not to put our hope in these things. First of all, because we don't need that. God saves by grace. We don't need to become something special. But secondly, God doesn't honor that. He's not looking for the all stars. There is no best of the best in God's kingdom. He is looking for the poor in spirit, for the humble. He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Who gets priority? No one. Who do we imitate? We imitate the ones that God says demonstrate what God values. Humility. So I did not go to or commend the Milford School which teaches that children should neither be seen nor heard. I was raised in a different way of thinking. I I was raised with a healthy dose of the Fred Rogers School. Anybody else grew up watching Fred Rogers? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, sorry. Mr. Rogers, wonderful. Every every episode of Mr. Rogers, he would look through the TV, and I believe he was looking right at me as, as a little kid. He said, I love you. How do you finish that? Just the way you are. Milford School would teach that you have to earn your place at the table. You have to prove that you have something to give us. That you're worth our time. But what Mr. Rogers, who by the way was an ordained Presbyterian minister, many people didn't know that, he was teaching grace. I love you just the way you are. That's the welcome of God. You are welcomed because God has welcomed you and for no other reason. The welcoming grace of God is possible... Because everything that would disqualify us, everything that would make us unwelcome, has been removed from the equation. Okay, follow me on this. Jesus died for our sins, amen? Good. Jesus took not only our sins, but the punishment that we deserved because of our sins, and He died in our place, amen? And because of that, He has taken our sin and separated us from it as far as the east is, from the West. Amen? Okay, that is our hope. That is, that is the basis of our salvation. Did anybody ask Him to do that? No. No. Did any of you say, Hey God, can you, can you take care of my sin problem for me? No. Did any of us deserve that? Did Jesus look down and say, Wow! Look at her. Look at him. Look, look at them. Now there's somebody whose sin I would be willing to die for. They deserve. They're almost there. They just need a little bit more. They just need me to take care of their sin problem. No, that's what Paul was getting at when he says, you know, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. You know, somebody might look at a good person and say that that they're worth dying for. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did we fail to meet any standard of deserving his love, we'd gone the other way. We, We undeserved it. You know, we, we merited an unwelcome, a rejection. And that, that is the circumstance under which Christ died for us. That's what the welcome of the children here reminds us. That we don't bring anything to Jesus. We did not bring anything to Him except our need. Now, actually, I want to take that back because my verb tenses were wrong the way I just said it. Because when I said we didn't bring anything to Jesus but our need, you might conclude from that, That, yeah, sure, when I first was saved, I brought nothing but my need. But now, now I've got something to offer. Because I've been living right. I've been doing what I ought. I've been learning my Bible. I've been studying. I've been living it right. Now I have something to offer. So I'm going to retense my statement and say, we don't, even now, and never will, bring anything to Jesus but our need. And He brings grace. When your need meets His grace, there you find welcome. The welcoming love of God. And where you have found a gracious welcome, you learn that there is therefore no reason to hinder anyone from receiving that same welcome that you so graciously received. And so when you recognize that you are a sinner who has received salvation, you turn and proclaim as we will sing in a moment. Come, ye sinners. Poor, needy, weak, wounded, sick, sore. Jesus ready stands to greet you, full of pity, joined with power. That is our message now. We who have received the rich welcome of God, we bring others. We are not the disciples in this story who would hinder. We are the parents bringing those we love, friends, neighbors, loved ones, bringing them and laying them at the Savior's feet, that they too may receive the same welcome that we so graciously receive. Let us pray that He would bless us in those labors. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the welcome we have received, that because of Christ, we who deserved Your wrath have become objects of Your mercy. You did not need to do so. And yet it was your delight to welcome us into your eternal kingdom. Now make us generous hosts who invite others to experience the same rich welcome that we ourselves have received. May we be like the children and acknowledge that we have nothing to give, nothing to boast in, no status upon which to base Our acceptance. And yet we are welcomed. Welcomed by a God who loves us unconditionally and thoroughly. And has demonstrated that love at the cross. We thank you for this. In the name of and according to the will of our Savior.